Welcome to Strange Bedfellows, an ACOM series about Yoko Ono and Paul McCartney's struggle over legacy after John Lennon's death. Today, we welcome author Joe Hagen to the show. He dishes the dirt on Jan's relationship with Yoko. We get Joe's personal takes on Paul and Yoko from his own interviews with them both. We speculate about Paul's public endorsement of Jan's book, slightly eyebrow raising. (laughs) We discuss Paul's building of his own legacy and John and Yoko's obsession with the media. Yep. Joe shares a fun unpublished anecdote from Paul about Ringo's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He shares a lot of fun unpublished things. Yes, he does. (laughs) He offers some insight on Paul via Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) That's right. It's a pretty free form very fun, very informative, very insightful conversation. We talk a lot about rock culture, journalism, myth-making, and of course, the interpersonal politics amongst the rock star boomer elites. <laughs> Joe was extremely generous with his time and all the information he shared with us. Very grateful to Joe. Thank you, Joe. It was a pleasure. This is one of my all-time favorite ACOM appearances. Oh, yeah. Here's our conversation with Joe Hagan. People are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles, and a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, are Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind, a different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Hello, welcome to episode two of Strange Bedfellows. This is a podcast series about Paul and Yoko's relationship Mm. from the time of John's death until the present day. And today we have the perfect person to comment on this, Mr. Joe Hagen, author of the Jan Wenner biography, Sticky Fingers. Joe is in the rarefied position of having interviewed Jan Wenner, Yoko Ono, and Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. So we are very excited to get his perspective. Welcome, Joe. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate what you guys are doing. Well, thank oh, you well, very thank much. You. Yeah. I appreciate that. So as a quick background slash reminder for our listeners, mm-hmm. Yoko and Jan Wenner colluded in the 1980s and beyond to build and disseminate John's posthumous mythology. Now, in his new autobiography released September 2022, Wenner described himself as a, quote, handmaiden to this last testament of John's, (laughs) by which he meant Lennon remembers. So John gave his last testament 10 years before he died, I guess. And he's sort of been used 
almost like a pawn maybe in the in the PR wars between Yoko and Paul or the Lennon estate and the Paul McCartney estate. Yeah, I guess. sure. The Mostly by Yoko. I mean, she sort of has been using him as as a tool since the 70s, since Lennon remembers. Right. Yeah. And and you're pretty clear about that in Sticky Fingers, Joe. But I also feel like Jan was pretty transparent about that as well oh, yeah. in his book. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, my whole theory of the case uh, came from interviewing Jan initially, then looking at his papers, you know, mm -hmm. and seeing how hand in glove and what a you know, tight relationship he had with with John and Yoko in the 60s. And it was foundational to his magazine. And, you know, at the time in the late 60s, the Beatles internal drama was pretty much the central narrative of any rock magazine at the time. You know, that was like a, a major beat, if you will, uh, for Rolling Stone was what was going on inside the Beatles world. And they were very close to it in different ways. But Jan very, very consciously chose to kind of uh, get close to John and Yoko with the help of Jonathan Cott who was like an important figure in all of this, you know, the, another Beatles, um, mm. you know, documenter. And of course, as I describe in the book, uh, his relationship with John was summarily uh, ended after he kind of exploited him uh, for that big mega interview that people know about. And uh, of course, Jan published that interview as a book against John Lennon's wishes. And interestingly, you know, one of the reasons, one of the reasons John Lennon didn't want that, publish, uh, as we come to know, is that he realized it had hurt so many people. You know, he had been so unvarnished yeah. and he'd done a lot of damage with it. It was like his exit interview from the Beatles was basically like him yeah. shooting a machine gun from a turret, right? <laughs> I mean, it was just like, you know, yeah. fuck all y'all and boom, boom, boom. And so he maligned Paul, he maligned George Martin, he maligned the Beatles and basically gave the impression he regretted the whole thing. And Yoko was by his side during this entire interview, by the way. Mm. And so, you know, that is a big uh, moment where everybody is exploded apart, right? You got John and Yoko in one corner, Jan's in another corner, and Paul's over here, right? I don't think Jan was like that important to Paul, but Paul <laughs> knew that Jan, and, and by the way, Paul continued to believe throughout the 70s that Jan was just a mouthpiece for John Lennon. So he never trusted him. That's what he told me, and it's in my book. He said, we didn't like to hang with him. Basically, we didn't like him. We thought that anything we said to him was going to go straight to John, right? Um, sure. We, in fact, the quote was, we didn't think he was independent. When he was talking to me, I was sort of talking to someone who would report back to John, no doubt about it. And so, yeah. you know, there was a distrust there. And, you know, these relationships, obviously, as you're going to note, starting with the death of John Lennon, morph into something else, has different phases to it. But the central premise of uh, this particular episode, what you guys are talking about here, was also something that came out of talking to Jan Wenner and looking at his papers and, see, and, and getting the stories from he and Annie Leibovitz, by the way, and uh, learning about the creation of that very legendary Rolling Stone cover, that yes. Rolling Stone issue that commemorated the death of John Lennon. Um, and that was like, you know, that's the sort of foundational moment where Jan uses that death to celebrate and memorialize John Lennon and thereby creates, you know, the door is opened back up to him from Yoko. Yeah. And yeah, that, that really seems to have been the case. He was able to reclaim that role with, with Yoko in the Lennon estate. 
Mm-hmm. And that was a, you know, one of the interesting things that Yoko told me was I, I said, well, what did you think about that when Jan's coming to you? And uh, at first it was just to talk about the photo, mm-hmm. you know, what they were going to do with sure. it because they wanted mm-hmm. to get her permission to use it and in what way, because they were trying to be sensitive. And right. I asked her about this famous, um, it's now, I don't, it wasn't well known for years. In fact, when I wrote about it in the book, a lot of people had not known about it, which is the little print that Jan Winter put inside the pages of that issue mm-hmm. of Rolling Stone, right? It was a message to Yoko, essentially, mm-hmm. saying, and saying, you know, I'll do it, I promise, I'll take care of Yoko, hold on, John, you know, a reference to the song. And Jan was, he said, well, she saw that, and that opened the door for me. That's what it, he said. It's, it's a pretty clever move, actually, because like yeah. knowing what we know about John and Yoko and how they love Cloak and Dagger. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, there's that famous story of how they sent a rose to Ray Connolly and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Seems like he he knows he how would, to yeah. play her game. Yeah. And And she said, you know, I didn't know you could take that two ways, she said. You know, you could see that as really clever or you could say that was earnest. And she came to believe over time mm. that it was an earnest thing. Mm. Um, could have been both. I mean, interesting. you know, my whole read on Jan is that he is both, you know, it could have been clever and earnest, you know, that's not, they're yeah. not mutually exclusive. And uh, in any event, that's where the story really begins for you guys in this particular uh, theme, because uh, he basically promises that he's going to, burnish the legend of John Lennon on her behalf, right? Yeah, that if there are, if there are sides to be chosen, that he right. has chosen his side. Right. And so then what does Paul McCartney say about this? Uh, and I'll just read you this paragraph from my book because it gets straight to it. But um, sure. there's that line in Jan's, uh, in his message to Yoko. Now, just to alert people that may not have known anything about this, if you got that famous Rolling Stone issue, there's a there was a secret message down near where the staples are that stapled the magazine together. Mm-hmm. If you opened it up and you had a magnifying glass, you could go down there and look at this message. And, and one of the lines in the message is, I'll do what I said. And it doesn't say what he said he would do. <laughs> but the implication right. yeah, but the implication is I'm gonna hold up my promise this time. Mm-hmm. because he had broken the promise previously, right? Mm-hmm. And so I write here, the promise did not go unobserved. Quote, One, once John got murdered, he became the martyr, the Buddy Holly, the James Dean character, said Paul McCartney. A revisionism started to go on, and Yoko certainly helped it. Now John was it. He was it in the Beatles. He was the force behind the Beatles. He's done it all. I just booked the studio. <laughs> and then he said, because of that climate, he said, Jan was not sort of the favorite his mm. kind of loose way of saying it, you know. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, to, that, that might have been an understatement. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Dry British understatement, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that sort of sets the scene for what uh, was to unfold. So I have a question about London Remembers, since you mentioned it, and it yep. is a big part of, of your book, uh, of Jan's book, of the yep. whole story of Rolling Stone, honestly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the story is very clear in your book about how John didn't... I mean, John wrote a note to Jan in very 
very clearly saying you saw fit to publish a book of my work without my consent in fact yep. against my wishes having mm -hmm. told you many times on the phone and yeah. in writing that i did not want a book you know i mean he is very very clear he's pissed and he's pissed yeah exactly yep. and jan is is transparent about it in his book as well the, the end like you like you wrote he said that he ultimately decided he had fucked up because it wasn't worth sacrificing the relationship with john to get the money yeah forty thousand dollars oh geez that definitely wasn't worth it but you know in <laughs> 70 1970 it might have seemed like it was about you know and but well the in the context by the way is that rolling stone was in a financial duress at the time and he was starting a book imprint to kind of exploit his own articles for more money you know, mm. and he had borrowed a bunch of money from this rich guy named Max Pilevsky. And so there was this whole context to which this is happening. But afterwards, Jan basically rationalized it as, well, I'm a journalist and I can do whatever I want. I own this. Right. Yeah. Uh, but and that wasn't what he told John, which is the sort of, you know, the betrayal. Well, mm -hmm. he says that John expressed his regrets, you know, by not wanting to see it circulate. However, he doesn't really... It, like in his book, he doesn't really apologize for it. And he kind of doubles down on his decision. Yeah. Um, and he says, you know, even though I guess it hurt people, it was real and it was truthful. And like, I understand that he has to, to justify the continuing reprinting of this interview over and over again, yeah. he kind of has to see yeah. it as something credible. And well, I think let me we, tell you, he doesn't care. <laughs> He does not. Care <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm just telling you as a guy who knows him. Right? I mean, <laughs> I spent a lot of time with him. He doesn't care. You okay. Know? And well, he thinks, you know, whatever. <laughs> he he won the game as far as he's concerned because flash forward, the last printing of that book had Yoko Ono writing the preface. You know, I mean, that's like to show you the evolution, right, of this. Well, she doesn't see. Does she, does she seem to ever have really wanted it not to be printed? I I I, I don't think she cared. I mean, I yeah, she cared in as much as John was pissed. You know, right? And, and like she, so, she's gonna she's gonna back John's play, but otherwise, right? It's it's not something like after he's gone. It's just kind of an, a matter of like, will it help my interests? You know, if yeah. my interests are to whatever, either to make money or to continue the sort of mythology of the truth-telling iconoclast or, you know, to promote his solo career, like solo John Lennon over the Beatles or whatever. Yeah. But my question was, and I think you've already answered it, and I yeah. kind of knew the answer anyway, but um, what I'm interested in is, did Jan ever consider that that publishing that interview which John gave, you know, fresh out of this quack therapy in a bad mental state where he like torched all of his relationships, alienated everybody around him except for Yoko. Did Jan ever consider that it was exploitative? Like to John? Well, yeah, he considered it. And that and then he as a <laughs> consequently, he liked it because mm -hmm. exploitation is his game. That's what he does is, for a living. And He's is there, there sort of an extra thrill of exploiting someone you know as um you know yeah, i just as, think as that he he thought he saw how powerful the interview was and how much attention it got to rolling stone okay and it was right at that moment that he was starting a book imprint called straight arrow books 
and he basically had his new business partner on that. He said, yeah, you know, that would make an amazing first book. You know, I mean, we got to put that, we have to publish that, you know, sure. on straight yeah. or press. And Jan was sort of like, you know, well, the Beatles are over, right? It's like, he's crazy. Um, <laughs> and so what do I care? You know what I mean? I'm yeah. gonna, I want to win the game here. Yeah. And um, he tried to have it both ways by trying to, you know, and there's that hilarious line where Yoko told me the story <laughs> that she was in a hotel room with John and uh, Jan called up and said, hey, so I'm publishing the book and I want to send you six free copies. <laughs> Which I just thought, I, when Yoko told me that story, I burst out laughing, you know, it was like, in, you know. Wow. Um, so, but that's, yeah. Jan, that's Jan Winter, man. I'm telling you, that's Jan Winter. You, that's not the Jan Winter you're going to see in that memoir. That's funny. Uh, but that's who he is. He's sort of like, um, you know, the one of the essence of my essential kind of um, interpretations of Jan has to do with just his name. You know, his name in his baby book, his mother wrote, his cruel, terrible mother wrote, uh, you know, Janice, God of two heads, right? But we also know that Janice is like, it's Janice, <laughs> Janice faced, right? It's he's two faced. Wow. Right. And he kind of fulfills that, the destiny of that name in a kind of like uh, a little eerie way, you know? Yeah. And he was known for that. He was known. Thanks, Mom. Yeah, thanks, mom. Well, his mom is horrible, you know. You know, the, in his book, which I, this was a fascinating thing in his memoir, actually. And he and I had talked about this a little bit, but I didn't get this. I wasn't. When she died, I was no longer talking to him. Okay. Um, but uh, or was I? No, but he didn't tell me this for whatever reason. Maybe it's too personal or whatever. But he he said um, the last words she's ever said to him was when he was putting his hand on her and she said, get your fucking hands off me. Oh, Jesus. And, Jeez. Uh, so that's his mom. You know what I mean? And I, I interviewed her um, when she was still living and wow. I mean, she was um, mentally ill, you know? And so, mm -hmm. I mean, he was raised by somebody who's very volatile and kind of, I don't like to throw around the word crazy. It's not nice, sure. but definitely yeah. was not all right. You know? So you don't mean she had like a uh, late onset dementia. You mean she... no, she, throughout her life, she has been, yeah. you know, maybe who knows, maybe bipolar or definitely a narcissistic personality disorder, yeah, personality disorder yeah. uh, which she passed a little bit of that on to her son. Yeah. So um, if you don't mind, could I ask, have you read Jan's book? I have uh, power skimmed it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was going through and I was like, okay, yeah, I know this story. I know the story. And my, you know, sure. I suspected that he used my book. Well, as yes. a, you could just tell, like <laughs> you, you go through yes. it, and, you know, and he's just, he's blogging my book. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. He, he's yes. live blogging with his own corrections. Exactly. With <laughs> And he leaves out all the fun stuff that was, you know, actually. well, naturally. So, yeah. Of yeah, course, thought, no one I will thought, notice. I have I'm to sure. say, my first thought after I read the book was sadness for him. Mm. Uh, I felt, wow, you really um, didn't have to write this book. Mm -hmm. And you did it, but you weren't even like, you have no self-awareness. <laughs> you know, you keep dropping, you keep your, you think that people, you think it's helping your legacy to talk about 
all the yachts you hung out on, you know, (laughs) it's not helping. You know what I mean? He's, He's just, he focuses on the wrong things a lot and he doesn't have much more to bring to his own life in terms of analysis or thought. You know? Yeah, I agree. And, and that bummed me out for him because I, you know, just I've never talked about this, but this is an interesting sideline, which is that people told me, oh, you know, your book really, uh, my book hurt his feelings and made him have to have like a come to Jesus kind of moment with his life. You know what I mean? Because, mm-hmm. and he was going through an illness anyway, but he, I don't think he was aware of what people who he thought were his friends were going to be saying about him. And I think a lot of that, you mm. know, it, it it came at a time in his life when he was vulnerable anyway from health problems because he was selling Rolling Stone and it was a big, you know, emotional passage for him. And then my book was pretty unvarnished, right? And some people said to me afterwards, I think this is going to make him more reflective and maybe he will become more thoughtful about people he hurt or the way he behaved. And in some instances, he throws a little of that in there uh, in the book. But, you know, I still find him, I feel like in some ways his values and his shallowness continually undermine his legacy because there's Mm -hmm. so much substance in the early Rolling Stone. There's so much cultural revolution in it. There's so much great stuff, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but he kind of like belittles it by like, but his life belittled it too, right? Because by the yeah. time it's 1977, he's a cokehead and he's hanging out with Jackie O and he's basically being a socialite, right? So it's like, yeah. you know. Right. <laughs> Almost he, as if fame and wealth and power were not good for his mental health. Or, or, or they were what he was seeking all along, which, mm. you know, the thing he hated about my book was, well, probably lots of things, but one of the things he hated was that how I said he was a part of the invention or the reinvention of celebrity, but mm. clearly he's obsessed with celebrity, right? Yes. And, and that was a major value for him. And he well, did. Yeah. yeah. I just thought he'd take that as a compliment. No, he just, he's mad about, you know, he, you know, hmm. he wants it both ways. He wants to have all of the sort of shallow accoutrements of his like fame pursuit while at the same time being thought of as, as like the only guy in town who was talking about climate change 10 years ago or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, he, he just, he's, or, you know, the only guy who ever interviewed Barack Obama, you know, right, he's right. so, he's proud of those things. And pride is a major part of Jan's persona and personality. He's very proud of himself. He's very proud of what he invented and he should be, but he doesn't really get, you know, I don't think he gets his own thing in some ways, but. Well, anyway, I'm not. That, yeah. After after having read your book, I'm not entirely surprised by that either, because yeah. that is sort of the profile that you paint. And I, I agree that it is kind of sad because I don't think that Sticky Fingers portrays him as a monster. No, I mean, he, he's, he does assholic things, but he actually did do those things. And and he <laughs> but the but the thing is, is and I uh, I I stand by this. And I think this is true. His his uh, freaking out over Sticky Fingers uh, poisoned the perception of the book mm-hmm. as negative when it really wasn't totally negative. And he also, he would have gotten so much more mileage and been so much more respected if he had embraced the book. 
and said, you know, I don't like everything in here and it hurt my feelings, but you know, it's mo mostly true. And look at all these great things I did. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the book does, you know, it p sets him up as like a major figure in cultural history in America. Right. Mm -hmm. And around the world. And, and, you know, there's plenty of celebrities in there and he is, you know, touching the hem of every rock star garment in town. And, uh, you know, what is he, what, you know, that's what he wants. But anyway, the real reason he doesn't like it is he didn't have control of it. And so yeah. that's really boils down to, cause he's a control freak. Yeah. That's the st sticky finger story. And I, you know, I'm looking right at Jan's book. I have a galley of it here. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, I found the last chapter interesting because he kind of, it's about his emotional experience trying to sell Rolling Stone and how painful it was for him. And he kind of goes into a, he has to go into therapy and physical therapy and mental therapy and, you know, cause he's been sort of clobbered. Um, and I saw some of that towards the end and it's in my book too, you know, some mm -hmm. of the last, as he's selling Rolling Stone, it was like, basically he didn't think there would be anything left on the other side for him which is not, you know, not too surprising. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, you know, it's his identity. It's his identity. And, you know, I mean, he, there's this David Geffen is quoted in there as like saying, Jan came to him rather in the Hamptons having lunch or something. And he basically saying Jan was afraid to sell Rolling Stone because he thought that he, he wouldn't have any friends afterwards. That everybody would just, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and Geffen was like, well, if they're not your friends, they weren't your friends to begin with. So just whatever. True. The friends you have left, yeah. those, are, those are the real friends, you know. Uh, but Jan was insecure, and he's an insecure guy. So, And that's yeah. scary, <laughs> the prospect of having no friends. Yeah. Yeah, at the, not quite the end of your life, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or finding out that you never had. Oh, yeah, right. We're, right. And you he know, does, you know, but the thing is, yeah. I think what he underestimated is that the culture makers of his generation, including the rock stars, are now a kind of like small social group unto themselves. You know, if you go out into the Hamptons, I'm going to tell you a funny story. <laughs> There's a yoga center, a yoga uh, studio out in the Hamptons, uh, a friend of my friend is the instructor there and another friend of mine uh plays a sitar in right. the studio while they do it mm -hmm. okay. and the you know it's like uh paul simon paul mccartney <laughs> uh lauren michaels mm -hmm. you know all these people you expect <laughs> to see out in the hamptons right and they all like commingle with each other and they've known each other forever since the 70s and they've had ups and downs with each other and they're mm -hmm. kind of like but they're basically that's they have each other now, right? Yeah. They're all of a certain age. They all shared a certain cultural history, and by the way, all around them is like Wall Street billionaires have bought up all the property that used to be theirs. Yeah. And so it's like, in a uh, you know, there's a scene in my book where Paul describes going to Jan's house with Linda, and Jan wants to show them his Picasso. Right. And this is very typical of what it's like out in the Hamptons. You know, they all have these sort of like, they all want to refract each other's glow a little bit. You know, <laughs> they get around each other and like, you're famous, I'm famous. We've known each other for years. <laughs> Let's talk about our fancy paintings and have a dinner party. And David Geffen will come over. And, you know, did you, um, what was I just, uh, 
Did you see that David Marchese interview with uh, Bono that was in the New York Times Magazine recently? Oh, no. Okay, no. well, I don't recommend it, but um, <laughs> not. But it's like there's a – but Marchese is a good interviewer, and he has this uh, – he says, so, you know, there's a uh, a picture or a report somewhere where, you know, you're on a yacht in the Mediterranean somewhere with Rupert Murdoch and um, Jared Kushner and, like, mm. you know, just a we weird variety of, like, powerful rich people. Uh -huh. Now, now Bono's thing is like, oh, I was, you know, shaking people down for money for my one. Sure, campaign, sure. Right? Which I get. But that's all. This is like the real story of like power in America is that once you get to a certain level of fame and money, like a lot of the uh, what people think of is like these demarcations between them kind of disappear, mm. you know, they they all get together because they all go to the same rich people places. Yeah. So. That was when it was this meeting in the 90s when Paul and Linda go to Jan's house to see the Picasso, maybe on Jan's invitation, that they begin to kind of reconnect and talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sort of this is a it marked a new chapter in their relationship, which would continue to have ups and downs even after that. But um, that was the beginning of the the rock and roll hall of fame meaning john's well, no, induction no this is around the time when uh jan asked paul to to induct in, john and in, 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 induct john right yeah. and that's um and that's a whole drama right right yeah. and <laughs> yeah. um and that was one of the surprising things about in interviewing mccartney uh just how like pissed off he was about that whole incident you know right yeah and uh, so, he, he had some choice words for him yeah go ahead uh, while we're talking about that, just out of curiosity, do you, did you, or do you get any impression of Yoko, of Yoko being involved with that decision or her encouraging Jan to mm. renege on that promise or any, uh, any involvement whatsoever? Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about, about that because Jan can renege on a promise without Yoko's help. Of course. <laughs> but, uh, of course, yeah. But, um, I mean, it, it was during this time, now we're, that was the early 90s. One thing that's worthwhile, uh, there's a book out there to be had called uh, Face to Face, the photographs of Camilla McGrath. So Camilla McGrath was sort of an Italian um, royalty, you know, aristocrat, who was married to an American named Earl McGrath, who was in the record business, and they were social friends of the winners. And, uh, but these photographs have like, there's a whole section of uh, Earl and Camilla McGrath vacationing with Jan and Yoko and all of their kids. Mm -hmm. And they would go to these islands and have it. And it was like, oh, and there's Sean when he's 12 and, you know, Jan's adopted son, Alex. And then this is also the period when Yoko invites Jan to go uh, to meet the queen, um, Elizabeth. Yeah, and, weird. you know, they are like, and basically Jan has become Yoko's walker, right? So, you know, in, in the parlance of socialites and aristocrats, mm. it's often that there is a royal personage or some kind of high society gal who has a, a gay man who kind of accompanies her everywhere she goes, right? That tracks, yeah. And uh, yeah. that was sort of Jan was doing that for Yoko for, uh, you know, in, in sort of 
mm-hmm. you know, Manhattan social circles and, and so forth. They, they hung out and a lot of it had to do with shopping for carpets and stuff. So what's Jan's relationship with Paul is non-existent right, right. up until this moment. Right. So, you know, it's these fault lines that were um, established back in 19... 19- 70 or you know yeah the interview and everything they, these are still in at, at work and now obviously the death of john lennon has created even further um demarcations there so uh, the distrust still existed at this time um the fact that jan you know you, you know this was all a verbal conversation he had with paul about hey will you induct john and then paul calls him back right and says well wait a second what about me you know, because we were always Lennon McCartney. Why would you just do one yeah. and not the other, right? And he goes, oh, we'll do you next year, right? And well, so that's what Jan purportedly told Paul. That's what Paul said he heard, right? Mm-hmm. It was a verbal, right? Yeah, right. And well, and then, and because the, the way that um, Paul uh, talks about it actually is interesting because the, the way he puts it, I just want to read you this quote because it's pretty good, right? <laughs> Um, The next year, McCartney discovered that he was not, in fact, being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I rang Jan and I said, I'm getting all the papers. I don't appear to be in it. You fucking bastard, said McCartney. We had a deal. This is the line I meant to read to you. A verbal contract that was not worth the paper it was written on. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, it wasn't worth the paper. It was not written on paper. So that didn't endear me to him. Right. And uh, then Jan goes on to say that he doesn't remember making such a deal well, naturally uh, <laughs> i imagine he didn't remember making a verbal deal with john lennon either no, no not, that's not the public. thing he's he's <laughs> yeah. uh casually forgetting these remember. things yeah right <laughs> right and then uh, like a verbal agreement with jan winner yeah still well and then away. paul goes on to say it all added to this historical thing that john was really it in the beatles and the other three weren't it by implication to me, me and John writing, it was so equal, and sometimes it was not equal. And by the way, this line resonates even more after we've seen the Get Back documentary. Absolutely, right? yeah. Sometimes I was absolutely the one that got his ass out of bed, which I don't go around saying, but in fact he's saying right in this book. <laughs> yeah. you, you don't find me saying, oh, it was me. You'll find other people saying it was him, it was me. I don't want to do that. I'm happy with half credit, right? So he's trying to be both diplomatic and say, what the fuck, man, I, I did a lot of shit. And, yeah, um, yeah. and of course, we know he did. And then when we saw and get back, and by the way, we are in the age of Paul McCartney revisionism. And I'm not going to lie to you. My book is a part of that because, and I didn't exactly yeah. understand that at the time. I, not until I was writing the book, I realized, oh, why did Paul McCartney, McCartney have me over to his studio in the country in England and take me up to his private office and sit on a couch and hang out with me for two hours. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, why? You know, I mean, he is a genial guy and he's very open generally. Right. Yeah. But he was definitely like road testing the next draft of history that he was writing. And that we have subsequently seen a lot in recent sure. years. And, um, and of course I was thrilled to be the one that this was getting road tested with. So I was yeah, great. <laughs> you know, I want to hear all about it, right? <laughs> of course. But but it's also true. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just true. And and Lennon was the leader of the group, and he it was he obviously was massively important. But the of course, and Paul the, never yeah never he's never said otherwise. it wasn't right. right. It's the chemistry of those two that was the whole bag, right? And it was 
you know, we can go over around and around on that. And you guys know it as well as anybody that yeah. the, the special constitutional makeup of these two young men whose mothers died had this strange, you know, one has, one is sort of, um, has like a Dionysian energy and intensity and the other has the Apollonian form. And that's just that combination is like, it's genius, right? Well, and even in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame story, Paul is willing to go second. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's willing to, yeah. okay, fine. He'll go first. I'll go the next year. Yeah, yeah. No, no big deal. I'm not going to throw a hissy fit over that. Yeah. Yeah. But pushing it to five years, yeah, you know, that makes the point that Yoko and or Jan would want to make. Yeah. The bigger the distance between those two inductions. Yeah. The bigger the dist. Exactly. And the bigger the gulf between what you think John's important is and Paul's importance. And like, I know it's silly. I know it's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like, how fucking seriously do we need to take it? But not very. But that's like the whole point of having a museum, right? Like if you, if if you're making a museum, obviously you're taking it seriously on some level. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a sort of like postscript to uh, that story that wasn't in my book. Oh, please. Which is that later on, uh, I'll just read you this because it's kind of funny. You know, I was just saying a moment ago. Um that you know it's often said that i you know or you, or you often observe these um rich guys hanging out on yachts together yeah yeah mm -hmm. i'm looking at my paul mccartney interview transcript right now oh gotcha, gotcha. so i've never this is not public but i'll just read it on your podcast <laughs> um so he's he's bitching about um jan pretending that he doesn't control the rock and roll hall of fame <laughs> yeah and uh, he says and he says it has nothing to do with him it's the people down the corridor right? Nothing yeah. to do with Jan, man. Then he goes, I was on David Geffen's boat and Robbie Robertson was there. We'd get invited periodically and just go for a couple of days. So luxurious. And Robbie Robertson was on there and he said, I hear Brian Epstein's getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <gasps> and no I said, I said, way. yeah, I said, wow, is he? He said, yes, but Ringo isn't in yet. He said, John, you, George, but Ringo's not in yet. I said, that's really unfair, especially if Brian is getting in, the manager is getting in. Oh, my God. He said he's in the Beatles. He's in with the Beatles, but they don't reckon his post-Beatles work. I said, oh, God, I think this is terrible. I started a campaign, and I wrote a letter to Jan. It's nothing to do with me, man. He's quoting Jan now. Unfortunately, I don't vote on this. I'm a, it's a committee. <laughs> he gave me a couple of names. One of them was John Landau, so I cornered him. And, uh, and then I said, I mentioned here that I said, you know, Jan's kind of the mob boss of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> and then Paul says, his character is a bit that. <laughs> um, he says he's done a, done a hell of a job. You can't take that off him. Um, but he's getting more and more like People Magazine. Ooh, uh, 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 Yeah, and, I, and Us Magazine. He's got Us as well. Anyway, he thought he owned both. But anyway, so anyway, he. this is Paul continuing. So anyway, I fought. I told Bruce Springsteen, John Landau, we sort of did a campaign. Jan then rang me up and said, oh, they decided that Ringo could go in. So then I rang Ringo. Would you want to go in? I'd forgotten about that. He said, yeah, of course. So I'm inducting him. Uh, so that was like that year he ended up inducting him, right? 
Uh-huh. Um, but it all began with a bunch of guys on a Geffen's yacht. Um, As so many decisions do, yeah, apparently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. So Yeah, I I love that analogy of the mob boss because mm. you know he's he's managing not to get indicted. Yeah, all the time. It. But well, yeah, yeah. he doesn't want to get but his he still hands has dirty. The clout. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, yeah, that's you know, and it's like much I think probably now it's less like that, or they tried to do a reform. You know, they he's not in he's not in it anymore. And they try Landau and he, you know, even though they're old friends, Landau is very cynical about Jan. And um, I think got to the point where they were like, you're doing more harm than good, you know, uh, by being perceived that way, if not, if, if not actually him, you know, being that way, although he probably was. Um, so in any event, um, another sort of like, uh, that's sort of a postscript to the story of Paul being screwed over as he then goes, you know, comes back for more. I love, right. the, I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, when Jan's book came out, Paul McCartney actually promoted it. Oh, yeah. That, which I also found sad, but I was not surprised because it goes back to this world that they're living in. And it's a world in which you could hate each other, but be in the same room and be stroking each yeah. other or come up with like, you know, or have some handshake deal about something. Yeah. It's transactional. It's transactional. And it, uh, to me, that's, that just reeked of transaction. And, uh, you know, and it was very easy for him to do, right. He just calls up his social media person. It's a, it's, <laughs> right. Of um, course. So it's very yeah. like perfunctory <laughs> performative. Yeah. I give this my blessing. Yes. The end. Exactly. Well, and, and uh, even in Sticky Fingers, you wrote about in 1980 when John was making Double Fantasy, Geffen told him, like, you really should hook up with Rolling Stone. And yeah. even though John wasn't getting along with Winter, he was like, all right, well, I'll do what I got to do because he was pragmatic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I also think all of these guys, Paul McCartney included, are full time in the legacy business. Yep. You know, burnishing their own legacies and helping each other burnish legacies and like, you know, you know, this is it. This is, you know, chapter 13. This, yeah. is, this is the end of the road and we need to uh is our last chance to put a high buff on the on the top of this thing, you know? So So but what does but okay, so I I understand that it's transactional, but what exactly I mean, maybe there's no answer to this, but like, I, I makes me kind of wonder what does Paul McCartney really get out of? And I don't, jo- I don't understand it. I don't like what, what can, what can Jan even offer him at this point? Or is it just a, do you think it's a matter of Paul just saying like, well, I'm not, I don't gain anything by being enemies with him. So I might as well be, you know, air quotes, friends. Well, I don't understand it. I think maybe um maybe Jan was going to uh try to soften their relationship in his book yeah and that paul was you know in the mood to have things softened but i but what i think happened if i had to guess okay hmm. i think these guys saw each other in the hamptons you yeah. know i think it was as simple as that and i know you know you the other thing that happens is the children of all these people hang out in the hamptons too yeah right and there's a whole sort of you know, sequence of events. I also think that when my after my book came out, that Jan went around 
you know, trying to repair mm. all these relationships and tried or try to, you know, soften shore them. up some support. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he could go to them. I was really hurt by what you said about me and Joe Hagen's book. And I <laughs> certainly hope that we can, you know, set the record straight because, you yeah. know, as well as I that I'm just making this up. But you see what I'm saying? This yeah, is yeah. Um, so I don't know the story there. I'd like to know. If I had Paul in front of me right now, I would definitely ask him, among other things, I would ask him about that. Well, he sounded, you know, just from from reading it, he he sounded genuinely pissed off in the interview that you did with him. Oh, yeah, he was. Yeah. And was glad that it wasn't going to be a whitewash. That's right. And and by the way, um, one thing that people don't uh, focus on as much from that interview, but it's also in my book, is that his claim that Jan came over to England in 66 and saw the International Times, which was the newspaper right. that Paul financed, and got the entire idea of Rolling Stone from him. And then he says, Jan won't admit it, he says in the <laughs> quote. So it's like, uh, it's pretty hilarious. But um, in any event, uh, you know, maybe trying to figure out, uh, you know, some kind of logic in this may be sure. the first mistake, you know. Yeah. Well, the most interesting part of it was not even so much Paul play a nice on the social media, because, yeah. you know, who really cares about that? It did definitely make me want to know what was in that book, though. Yeah. And maybe that's the whole point, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Is just knowing that they don't have a good relationship. Yeah. And Paul's saying that. Oh, now now you automatically start thinking, what's in that book? Mm -hmm. And there's actually very little about Paul in the book, from what I can tell. Yeah. But and, what little there is very interesting. Well, there, there's a couple of interesting things that Jan has said on social media. And then there's also a very suspicious and <laughs> weird passage in his book about running into Paul in the Hamptons, as you said. Mm -hmm. Um he said he ran into him in Long Island in 2013 and got to chatting and wrote some, you know, ridiculous stuff about his new album. And Paul played the new album. You know, he's 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 basically like Paul wanted some good press for his album. So we agreed to have lunch and it was all very friendly. And, you know, when he came to the office to pick me up and all the staff was like, ooh. Uh, which is funny because I remember <laughs> you saying that everybody knew that they didn't get along. Like everybody in the offices knew mm -hmm. that Jan didn't like Paul, I think is what you said. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he didn't. No. <laughs> and uh, that was known. I mean, the editor at the time told me that. I'll never forget the first time he told me that because it was a surprise to me. And this is way before the book. I'm talking about 20 years ago, him telling me that. Um, and, and there, you know, there was, a um, there's also this sort of weird, I don't know if this is in Jan's book, but there was also this weird attempt to establish some kind of detente between Paul and Yoko and Jan was somehow yes. involved. Yes. Yes. Definitely. And, <laughs> yeah. And they jammed together or something. I don't remember exactly what it all well, was. Well, okay. So this is what, uh, since I have the passage in front of me, I'll just, mm -hmm. uh, read from it. So. He says, uh, London remembers that hurt Paul, but his relationship with Rolling Stone was always good, producing many interviews and covers. Still, we've remained the keepers of the flame for John. 
I thought Paul was angry about that, but perhaps I was imagining it, steeped as I was in Yoko's partisan anti-McCartney stance and my loyalty to her. Yeah, so that how's that sentence make any sense? Exactly. So is he, he's <laughs> he's saying that Paul wasn't actually angry about Rolling Stone's partisanship and yeah. that Yoko's feud with Paul is one-sided? Is that what he's trying to claim? I... I don't even understand. He's saying or that he's an innocent bystander to, yes, to their, yeah. to their <laughs> that was like very it's diplomatically written, fault, right? But... Henry Kissinger yeah. wrote that line. Um, <laughs> that's like, uh, yeah, but that's all I know for a fact mm -hmm. was what I learned from Paul when I sat down with him. And he was very, very clear. In fact, the thing that makes me even more assured of this is that I was not even trying to elicit these answers from him. <laughs> you know, like I wasn't having to try very hard as a reporter yeah. to, to get him to talk about this. He was very open about it, you know, and about, he said, you know, Yoko and I are very different. We are not really, you know, we don't, he didn't say they're enemies, but he's like, she's not my kind of person. Oh, that's what he would say. In fact, I can probably find the line, but um, so, you know, he, and then, you know, he said the things that are in my book that are that essentially, um, you know, he kind of resented uh, the kind of reorientation of sure. history to make John yeah. the, the king. Right. So um, the, predictably you know, enough, like, of course, he's going to be upset about that because it's his yeah. history. Right. That's right. Like he's getting dragged under while, while John's getting built up. Yeah. That's fair. And, and if you think back on the 80s, especially. Right. During, you know, that was not like Paul's like, uh, you know, crowning period artistically. I well, mean, it, was, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't as bad as it was made out to be. But but no, I love that. I mean, I love even the hits. I do, too. But I love say, say, say. But um, uh, in any event, um, you know, the 80s was the beginning of the legacy burnishing. It was it's hard. It happened really quick. It did. Yeah. yeah, we're tracing um, it on the podcast. So we're yeah. deep, we're knee deep in it right now. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, and I have uh, a lot about that in the book about, you know, the invention of classic rock as a format, you know, the evolution of the Rock and Roll mm -hmm. Hall of Fame as a thing that was going to begin to um, reestablish these artists and help them sell, you know, their albums again. And it becomes this sort of industry of recycling them. And, and in Rolling Stone, increasingly, you see the same artists on the cover and over and over again because they know they sell, right? Sure, um, sure. And then, and, and then they eventually, you know, Jan's so focused on them, he kind of like loses the thread of what's happening with actual youth culture. Right. Um, starting with MTV and so forth. But... Yes. Can we circle back to the, um, the 2013 <laughs> Long Island meeting uh -huh. or whatever? Okay, so he says they have a, a gossipy, fun lunch and that uh, Paul's anxious to talk about John Lennon and he wants to make sure I understood the depth of his love, whatever that's supposed to mean. Because I guess he thinks Paul hates John? I, I don't know. And then he says, Paul didn't want to be in a fight with the John Colt. He wanted to be a part of it which whatever but then here, here's the really the really good part he says when i told yoko about my visit with paul she said something to the effect that i had fallen under his spell yeah she was a hard ass about it and had her reasons but i didn't want to be a part of it anymore 
Yeah. I thought that Sean should have a solid relationship with his deceased father's oldest friend. Paul had finally reconciled his own feelings about John. We were all growing up. Okay, so this is so great. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because uh, Jan is, here's how Jan got Paul to promote the book. He sent him that, right? Paul, I got a book coming out. Here's what it says about you. And Paul's like, oh, that's nice, right? Mm. And then promoted the book. That's, I'm, I'm 100, I mean, 99% sure that's what happened. Now that you're reading that, it's just clear as day to me. And what's hilarious about that is what complete bullshit it is. <laughs> and and uh, I also know because, you know, I had access to Jan's archive, which included all of his emails for like a decade. Okay. Wow. And I saw a lot of them. And I saw all of his exchanges with Sean. And he and Sean did not have a great relationship. You know, I mean, they were always like, blowing up at each other. There was a lot of like anger and antagonism between and, and between Jan and Yoko in recent times. In fact, that book reflects and what you're reading there reflects more recent falling out between Jan and Yoko. Yeah. Now I wouldn't, I don't want to say a falling out, but like Jan's always putting her down and saying she's crazy. Right. Mm -hmm. And he would say this to me and, you know, and maybe, you know, she's getting older and, well, sure. and yeah, she would get, she'd get, yeah, she'd get angry. Sour. Things soured. And so where's Jan going to go with that? Oh, I know where I'll go, um, you know, cozy up to Paul who has, who shares negative feelings anyway. Yeah. Right. He just shifted alliances so that he can promote his fucking book. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, but it's, it's infuriating, you know, because he's such a little, um, <laughs> well, he's just so, um, he's, um, opportunistic. He's not. Yeah. Well, exactly. And again, yeah. once again, you know, once again, and uh but you know his relationship with paul i can guarantee you is shallower than a pond you know uh, yeah. yeah i can't imagine that it wouldn't be of course, yeah. yeah 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 it was just but, it was shocking to me how he threw her under the bus so hard though yeah. Yeah. yeah do you think that and the way that he do you think he's misrepresenting or misinterpreting yoko with this or do you think it's plausible that yoko really does have such a black and white zero sum game mindset about oh i'm sure she does but versus paul oh okay he, he, yeah but i mean um why do you why do you say that i just what what a zero sum game between yoko and paul yeah, yeah yeah why do you say that you're sure that she does see it that way well it's not just about feelings and history it's about um money mm. you know and there's resentments about money and um uh, you know, there's actually a little moment, uh, in my Paul interview where, um, I said, uh, well, I said, um, let me see if I can find it here. So he's saying, um, you know, he's talking about John and Yoko's relationship back in the seventies and about, um, here's what, here's what I'm going to just read this and maybe we'll make mm -hmm. sense of it. In retrospect, it's easier to accept than it was then because she was sitting on one of the amps. Now he's talking about get back. And it's like, who the fuck is this? What's she doing? <laughs> so that kind of drew a wedge. Later, I sort of thought, you know what it is? Crazy guy, wonderful guy. She fitted completely with his sort of experimental thing, his mother thing. She really ticked mm -hmm. off a lot of boxes. So with her kind of uh, watch this cloud, sing to this feather, you knew that that would attract John. 
She was obviously quite domineering, which is sort of strange. And shrewd, I said. That's me talking. To a point, she's not that shrewd. She sold the publishing, baby. That ain't shrewd. <laughs> and then he goes, never mind. <laughs> wow. So that was a little diss. And if you want to, I mean, you can take what you want from him, but that's a little bit of insight. Do you know? I love that. That's and, amazing. That's yeah. great stuff. When you said he, he, when, when he said she was very domineering, that's a little strange. Is that Paul adding that's a little strange or was that your, your comment? Uh, that was him, which was okay. sort of strange, which it was. And then I said after that, and shrewd, because I was thinking, <laughs> and I say that because she had been a part of exploiting John too. Yeah. Sure. And, um, yeah. and, uh, so he's saying, well, shrewd. Yeah, maybe, but to a point. <laughs> she's not that shrewd otherwise she would have not sold the publishing right mm -hmm. and she would have been loaded so i think that you know i think this antagonism goes back to the get back movie even though but but by the way you know how we've since decided everything wasn't exactly as we thought it was because mm, of the right. get back movie he's saying this is before the get back movie came out but he's still sitting here going she's sitting on the amps who the, the fuck is this what's she doing here i mean yeah, this is him talking about it. So he must have felt that way. Of course, it was yeah. like that or not. You know what I mean? So people remember things differently. And uh, when I interviewed Peter Jackson about this, he said, you know, their memories were did not comport with what happened. You know, they their memories were as skewed uh, by the historical revisionism as anybody else's. Well, yes. that that plus they have real they're living it. They have real intense emotions happening. So exactly. Yeah. I think that the thing between Paul and Yoko is probably pretty diminished at this point because she's sort of not, I think she's like in a wheelchair and probably kind of like, you know, sure. quite infirm yeah. and like, what's yeah. the point, right? Yeah. But, and by the way, he spent all this time while she's basically hiding out and no longer seen in public. He has spent all this time gamely giving interviews to anybody who'll put a mic in front of him and basically talking about this, right? And green lighting the get back movie because it does make him look like sure. the leader it's of the not bands, the asshole you know? that he yeah. was portrayed to be yeah exactly yeah. and it's he's redemptive to it's yeah exactly whatever. yeah exactly so I don't I think that in all of this for him to green light you guys have helped me come to an answer here to help mm -hmm. to green you know to help promote uh, Jan's book is all a part of it you know. Right, because if Jan used to be at odds with him and now has come to a point where he's saying nice things about Paul, that's that's only good. That's for all Paul. Paul wants. Paul just wants to hear the sweet, melodious, yeah, um, you know, blurb that says, sure. you know, Paul's the Paul's the reasonable one, you know. Right, right, right. It's hilarious to me that that Wenner in that passage is like, think of the children, Yoko. Like, right. <laughs> shouldn't yeah. Sean? have a good relationship with Paul. Think yeah, about yeah. it, you know. Yeah, no, it's just wow. Yeah. If I could ask just as mm -hmm. a follow-up and yeah. to the extent that you want to share, um what would Sean and and Jan be? Uh, Sean, Sean would make a record and he'd want Jan to promote it and Jan would be like, oh, "Well, I'm not, you know, you can't just make me, you know, Jan would hold things over him and like say, yeah. "Well, I can't even remember what it was about, but it had to do with Sean had a new mm, record yeah. out and of course Jan's the gatekeeper to his magazine is he going to give Sean any any uh, love in the magazine right um 
and it had something to do with that. And but it ended angrily, as I recall. I also don't think Sean and Jan Winter have like some, you know, deep Great. Per personal relationship. Yeah. But I mean, but at the same time, it's like anything and anybody in the history of the world. Uh, behind the scenes, you could have all kinds of antagonism for people or feel a certain way about them. But then when you get forced into a social situation, you're just going to act a different way. Sure. You know, you're going to be like, hey, how's it going? Good to see you. Great. You know, and just go along to get along. And I know that happened all the time with guys like Jan and David Geffen, right? David Geffen would say the most terrible things about Jan. <laughs> just unbelievable. Like just drag him, you know, just drag him. <laughs> And uh, and then, you know, they'd be having brunch the next weekend. Yeah, they sound so, like frenemies. They're frenemies. And I think, you know, all these guys are frenemies. And like I said, just to return to this, they're all, you know, you ask, well, what is the opportunism now? What is the coin of the realm, right? And it's the legacy thing. It's like they're all helping each other buttress their, you know, legacies. And, sure. And kind of like, uh, you know, invent their own tombstones. <laughs> but it's so superficial yeah. it, it feels like the alliance could go up in flames like next year <laughs> like it yeah, doesn't yeah. mean anything it, yeah and i often think i mean sort of a uh, um, a, a little mind exercise is to think about what would the paul mccartney of like 1969 think of the paul mccartney of now right and how different are they right mm -hmm. um and what would Paul McCartney of 1969 want his legacy to be? Or maybe he wouldn't even think about a legacy, right? He would probably thought the Beatles were, you know, I guess he knew that they were a historical thing, but who thought that rock and roll was going to keep going and going and going um, as a kind of like global institution, right? Right. Um, but now on the back end, you know, they're richer than hell, you know, and mm -hmm. they uh, have a lot of, influence and money to throw around and they're not as creatively potent as they were mm -hmm. and you know they there's fewer of them and so they're motivated to kind of scratch hey. each other's backs hang together yeah yeah interesting did you joe did you interview sean at all no i tried i mean he wouldn't mm. reply to my emails Oh, interesting. Uh, I don't think, you know, I think he tries to stay out of it. Yeah. You know, he's pretty low key, um, well, which is, you know, noble in its way, actually. Um, I mean, he's he's in he's the head of John Lennon, Inc. at this point. Right. Like he's he's probably right. Yeah, making in fact, all the he decisions. was the one who had to green light, uh, you know, get back yeah. from the estate level. Of the yeah. Planet. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you don't see him out there talking about it too much. You no, know, he'll like show get, show up to the premiere party or whatever. Yeah, that's about it. Do some photo yeah, ops yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, would you mind? Could I ask you, since you, you know, you've talked a bit about how your book and specifically how Paul's interview for your book has been used as a, a, sort of the bigger picture of reshaping or revising his public image or his legacy, so to speak. Do you, in retrospect, feel manipulated or handled by him? No, I because I feel like um, what he was doing is, it, in, in his view, correcting the record, but mm -hmm. balancing the record, 
you yeah. know, because the record was there was a huge John Lennon footprint in the public imagination about the Beatles, mm -hmm. you know, and Paul was in the ironically in the weaker position, still being alive, right? Yeah, right. Still yeah. making records, some of which aren't very good, you know, whereas Lennon died after he made a great record and that was the end of it, right? So his legacy is just sure. uh, a, a monument, you know? Yeah. And so, and like that Get Back film really did reorient us uh, around that history because yeah. there had been piles and piles of books, including mine, that sort of took the line that this was a contentious um, time. And it was a contentious time, but not in the way we thought. Or it didn't look exactly yeah, yeah. like that, right? Right, right. And um, so I didn't feel that way. But, you know, I'm also a journalist, and my feeling was this. When I got all these stories from Paul McCartney, including there's a story in there about, you know, going to try to um, patch things up with John on mm -hmm. behalf of Yoko and meeting him in a courtyard in L.A. and meeting Harry Nielsen and, you know, mm -hmm. Keith Moon. Yeah, and he's telling me all these stories about that and... I showed him this Polaroid that I found in Jan's archive and he, you know, elaborated on it and went into a reverie about what that time was like and what was going on between them. And I thought, as all this stuff is coming out, if you're me, a journalist, right, and a biographer in this case, I was just like, this is like golden material here. Yeah. You know? And I realized at some point in the making of my book that the intertwined relationship between Rolling Stone and the Beatles was like a big chunk of my book or a big chunk of my story right mm -hmm. and here you have paul mccartney telling you about these fault lines that existed between he and john and Mian, right and i thought this is what this demonstrates no matter whose side you're on see i didn't have to take a side about paul or john i just yeah. have to describe how they felt and the truth is is that rolling stone and this is why you know i wish Jan understood this i'm you know, I think other people do, which is that I demonstrated the power of Rolling Stone and its importance to history by showing its relationship yeah. to the greatest rock and roll band of all time. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. like to me, it was about the internal drama. Who's right and who's wrong is not for me to judge. And, yes. You know, what, yeah. right. like it is what right. it is. You know what I mean? But this is how Paul felt. And to me, that was like significant. And hearing it from Yoko's side too. And, you know, Jan's side, I mean, you're getting a lot of big points of view and all of them are telling a very, they're telling a similar story, right? Yeah. That, that there was, um, you know, a partisanship. So that partisanship was defined uh, Rolling Stone as well, which was the subject of my story. So. The Polaroid story, the, the, the story where John sends a Polaroid of him mm -hmm. and Paul and writes, how do you sleep to Johan yeah. Wiener? Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> that is Johan. that is absolutely one of the greatest stories in that book. I mean, what a scoop. I can't believe that we didn't know that before your book. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, it was a mind blower for me, I'll tell you. You know, when I first started the book, before I'd even signed a contract to do a book, I said, well, I'm going to have to write a book proposal. And I went to Jan and I said, well, you've got this massive archive. I said, why don't I just pick out one rock star look through all your correspondence and then write a, and interview you and then uh, write a proposal about it. Because um, my first thought when I was going to write the book was like, maybe this book will be about his relationships with all these different rock stars. 
which it ended up being more or less, but it, you know, <laughs> a little, a little richer than that. But, and uh, so I chose John Lennon because he's on the first cover of yeah. the first issue of Rolling Stone. And, uh, and of course he's important to everybody. So when I looked through there, that's when I found the Polaroid. And that's when I found all this correspondence that described in detail the betrayal over the book and the interview. <laughs> but that, um, but that Polaroid is one of the first things I saw. And I remember looking at it and just not knowing at all what I was looking at. You know, it was just very confusing. I was like, what the hell is this? You know? <laughs> right. And I just sort of like filed it away and kept, I took a picture of it and I thought about it and I just, and as the book started to evolve and I was going to go interview Paul, I realized, oh, this is the moment for me to bring out this Polaroid and find out what the deal is with this, yeah. you know? And it served two purposes. One was let's figure out what's up with the Polaroid and what's going on in this picture, which by the way, for those who haven't seen it, it's in, uh, it's not in my book, but I can, uh, I think I've posted a picture of it in the past, but yeah, it's, uh, it's John and Paul and Mary, the daughter, Linda's first daughter and Keith Moon and May Pang. And, um, in any event, the what really was great about it was that it sent Paul into a kind of like, turned out to be a good uh, journalistic device. Yeah. Uh, because when I showed it to him, it really like opened up the, you know, the closet of memories. And he started to really go into this whole thing about what that experience was like and why it had happened and the breakup of the Beatles and the context around it. Mm-hmm. And well, then I, I, when that was all coming out of Paul, I was just like, whoa. This is this this is the real deal here. So, what was his reaction when you hand? First of all, it's such a amazing act of journalism to to find that photo to just sort of inherently know that there's something interesting behind it, and to continue to pursue it and to bring it to Paul. Like, just amazing instincts on your part. Well, I'll tell you when I first saw it and took a picture of it, I made it the. it's the bad was the backdrop drop on my laptop for like a year (laughs) so because i would just sit there and look at it and think about what's the hell's going on in here and and who wrote this whose handwriting is that and paul's like that's not my handwriting because i wouldn't have known he said what uh palm sunday was because it says palm sunday 1974 i think it says yeah yeah and uh and he's like i wouldn't have known what even when that was you know and uh, and I he said that looks like something. And he said when he when he, when you realize that it's written by Johan to Johan Wiener, you know it's John. It's Lennon. John. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And um, so you know, and that uh, then trying to figure out why he sent that to him was more something I inferred than I know because we can't ask right. him yeah, obviously. Yeah. But uh, but it's pretty clear, right? You know, that, I agree. Uh, he had just trashed his record and. Uh, uh, Rolling Stone had and you know and then Paul was on the cover of Rolling Stone that spring well uh, I took it, it uh, yeah. I took it more as how do you sleep publishing Lennon remembers which yes. I, I asked you not to publish and yeah, which yeah, was, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, and here Paul and I are friends again so suck yes. on this exactly Lennon. exactly <laughs> exactly that's exactly it which, which to me sort of implies that at least John would have thought that Wenner was personally invested in John and Paul being at odds. Well, that's why why, I think it partly, um, yeah, I I think um, it's hard to know like what prompted it right in that moment. It could have been anything. 
Well, right? sure, sure. Some little bitter pill that stuck with him. It could have been the review of his record, which was negative. And he would have been like, fuck you, you know, but, um, or well, something. Well, he could have been mad at Jan for several reasons. Yeah, there's a number of reasons he could have been mad. Um, so, you know, I don't really, but it, it, regardless, you, it's a, it's a major sort of, um, document of uh, the emotional status of all of their relationships at the time. Well, what was Paul's what was Paul's reaction when you gave him that that photo? I mean, I know he started to to tell you about the lost weekend and all that sort of stuff, but like Well, he 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 wasn't that surprised. And and here's the reason why I've since realized that that Polaroid is a part of a larger group of Polaroids that May Pang took. Sure. Or that camera was around and everybody was using it because that's how Polaroid cameras were back then. You just picked it up and snapped, right? Because um, she's in it. But there's a whole book of those Polaroids out there that I've seen. It's associated with May Pang. She may have published it. But uh, so I'm sure he'd seen those before. And of course, he was familiar with it. It's instantly when he saw that, he's like, oh, I can tell you about this uh, what this is. Yeah. In fact, I can tell you what his reaction was by looking at my. Um, oh, yes, please. Uh, let's see here. I guess what I'm asking is when he yeah. realized that John sent that to Winner, what was his reaction? Oh, yeah, to yeah, that? yeah. Um, I don't remember. He didn't have like a strong reaction to it, but uh, hmm. here's what I'll say. I'm looking at what he said. Well, that doesn't look like my writing or Linda's, he says. Um, <laughs> this looks like when I went out to see John. Yeah. So he just started to instantly try to remember what it was, yeah. what he was looking at. And he goes, that looks like my daughter, Mary. I'm sure that was in LA. The story on that was there's going to be connections with Jan. Well, there is a connection. The story behind that was <laughs> Jana, Jana, Yoko came to see Linda and I in our farmhouse. So you know this story. Yeah, yeah. She comes out and says, why don't you go do that? And then he begins to go into a whole reverie. But he doesn't really comment on the Jan thing. I'll be honest, like in the interview, I had to always circle him back to Jan. Because he really had no interest in talking about Jan, and then you know, and whenever he did talk about Jan, it was like you know he would concede, oh, Rolling Stone, that was a great thing, but you know he got the idea from me, I never trusted him, you know, on and on. So I have to say, when I came out of that interview, I was bowled over because, well, a I was interviewing him to begin with, but like sure. I also. I came out of it thinking, oh, I got, I can't believe the material I just got for the book, how honest he was about it, you yeah. know? Um, and just how um, I didn't expect, you know, when you go in to interview people of his stature, you kind of expect to not get too much. Yeah. You know, you expect you're going to get boilerplate. And a well, bunch he of doesn't give that stuff. much. Yeah. And uh, this, and in this instance, he was very candid. And uh, that uh, surprised me and delighted me, frankly. And, mm. uh, and off, you know, it sort of uh, certainly made me, um, I guess, uh, like him, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> and, uh, and I was always, you know, I've always loved Paul McCartney. Yeah. And I, you know, I, when I went in there, I had a whole conversation with him about, that was not in the book, but... Uh, about about Ram because I love Ram so much. I just think it's one of the great. You yeah, know, it's probably yes. my favorite post Beatles solo record by any of them. But like, and it was funny because he didn't 
have fond feelings about that record. And, yeah. uh, and the reason was, is because it happened during a time that was hard for him, where he and Linda were, um, you know, out in the farm and Scotland and yeah. kind of like weather weathering the lawsuit with the Beatles and he was unhappy and he felt isolated. You sure. Know? Yeah. And like plastic so he, ono band. Yeah. Yeah. Well, both those al those albums are just, you know, you can there's a lot of coded stuff in those records, right? And sure. um about each other. And so he always looked at it as a painful time. So it was hard for him to revisit it and hear it as a, an artistic triumph, especially since it was poorly received at the time, mm -hmm. right? including by Rolling Stone, who trashed yeah. it. So um I will say that this was the end of the interview. So I said, well, while I have you here, <laughs> Paul, let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about my favorite record. And um, when he saw how geeked out I was on that, that's what led to him giving me a tour of his studio and playing music for me and stuff, which. Oh, nice. yeah. You said the magic words. Yeah. Yeah. Was <laughs> like, oh. yeah and the, I have a, I'm currently in my, um, my studio right now where I write and listen to music and stuff. And um uh, I have a picture right behind me of him playing a stand-up bass, the stand-up bass that Linda gave him for his birthday, which is uh, the one that was used on Heartbreak Hotel yeah. and all the Elvis recordings. It's a golden you know, stand-up bass. And uh, he, I have a picture of him playing it that I took because as soon as I started geeking out <laughs> on a ram, he said, oh, have you seen this bass over here? And he came and he started playing Heartbreak Hotel to me and sang it, at which point I died on yes. the spot. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and um so you know that kind of thing uh led to it was that that led him to say hey come down and i'll show you around the studio and show you these beatles and beatles instruments and you know there's a video on youtube which you may have seen which is i have seen yes actually, yeah yeah. I have. <laughs> yeah which is that was a moment in which i basically was like bury me now it's over right right <laughs> um <laughs> so I, singing. yeah i know it was incredible and um and he was just a delightful guy. And um, so, you know, I was given to like him and, but I didn't feel, you know, uh, to your original question, I, you know, I was just going to put his point of view in there. That didn't mean I had to agree with it in every instance. And I did see that he was a little bit, yeah. Uh, you know, he's got a big ego too. Right. And sure. He, he's, sure. Old, yeah. he's, you know, he's sort of wounded that people don't, and insecure that people yeah. think that he's not the greatest Beatle or whatever. And I remember um, later on, I interviewed Bruce Springsteen and I told him that about that and about Paul sort of feeling like, Hey, you know, why, do, why have I always been given the second fiddle status? I'm like, what? You know, You're Paul McCartney for fuck's sake. What do you want? <laughs> I mean, you know? And, uh, but Bruce was like, Oh no, man, that's, that's me. Cause he's an artist. He says, we're all like that, you know? Aww. Yeah, and we know that Bruce is like that too. You know, he's and we know like, that John Lennon was like that that's very true much, too, yeah. or he yeah. would have gone so hard trying to turn yeah. the tables on Paul. That's right. I mean, care. so you know, these guys are—they're you know sensitive, vulnerable guys. They care about what people think, yes. and you know, it's like you think that because you get rich and famous that it puts you in some golden stratosphere where you don't have to care what people think and. You have infinite confidence, but it's just not true. It's just yeah. not true. Well, a lot of times the drivers to become that famous are, you know, yeah, right, exist in the first place. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, you can't and you can't, um, you know, pay them away with money.
I would love to know what your impression was of interviewing Yoko. Because I've, yes. I've heard a lot of people talk about what it's like to interview Paul, but almost no one. I've heard almost nobody talk in any detail about what Yoko is like to interview. Like, did you find her forthcoming? Was she happy to talk about things? Did she bring up topics on her own? She was, um, she's very weird. <laughs> oh. And, and uh, there's like a, her orientation is, is, um, uh she's um she can be sharp and curt mm. you know mm. and also there's a sense that she uh you can't really fully understand what her tone is sometimes mm. partly it's because she's got a heavy japanese accent you know mm. that you can't always tell exactly what she's but she's she would be severely and savagely honest sometimes mm. and then and and she was in the interview. I mean, she about her. I was surprised about Jan. About Jan. Okay. Yeah, we were about Jan and, and John. You know, but she would tell. She would not hold back. She Damn. was another one who I figured. Well, she's going to probably. It'll be not too interesting. Maybe she'll. Yeah. You know, white whitewash things, and she did not. Yeah. And uh, but she would be very curt with you if she didn't like the question, and you mm. know, if she thought it was stupid, she would be like, "No, that's." You know, she would just be like really <laughs> dismissive, you know. Um. It was weird. She had a lot of assistants who, you know, the whole atmosphere was like you're getting an audience and you have to like behave and all this stuff. It was pretty intense. And it was I did the interview at the Dakota. Oh, wow. And I'll never forget sitting in the living room waiting for her and uh, the white pianos just sitting right there in front of me. Wow. And hanging over wow. it is a, is a Magritte painting, like a real one. Oh, you know? and you don't remember just, which one do you i have a picture but um <laughs> thank you I, I, I took the picture very surreptitiously and it's blurry because <laughs> i was afraid the assistant was going to see me you know she was already kind of like who are you and what do you want kind of vibe so and, and yeah um, yeah we'd be curious because paul worships magritte yeah oh that's interesting so well that's yeah he's a yeah. he's been a collector since the, the 60s yeah right so maybe she apple. has it up there because she's like paul yeah, really like you, that paul. but he's not yes. getting it <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we, and so we went into the kitchen for the interview, and afterwards I said, "Can we take a picture?" And I took it, and she goes, "Let me see it. I want to see it." And then she'd look at it, she'd be like, "No, erase." And then she'd try again, and then she would let me take put my sunglasses on. Okay, it was like eight thirty at night. So she puts <laughs> that on, and then she takes that picture, and uh, they both look fine to me. I look terrible in both of them, but um, in any case, uh, you know, she was amenable. And uh, she would respond to emails at one point. We had some email exchanges that were short, but just about, you know, when we were going to get together or whatever. But uh, she was relatively open. I'd have to go back and look at the transcript to remember exactly how it was. But she um, she answered all my questions. Yeah. And uh, sometimes she would tell stories I didn't quite understand what she was talking about. She, would, <laughs> You know, what I mean, sometimes she would tell stories, and this is not just limited to her but sometimes there are certain people that will tell a story without any context and they right and you're trying to expected to follow yeah yeah and the fragments aren't coming together for you and you're kind of like i don't really know what that anecdote was about but um but one of the things that she uh said that was really and this is in the book 
is that later on she had this like peace prize that she gave out every year. Mm-hmm. Um, she oh, yes, I, I remember this. But yeah, tell it's funny. Yeah, yeah. And she was going to give it to Jan because she felt sorry for him because she felt like, <laughs> you know, nobody cared about him anymore. And I was just like, wow, that's kind of backhanded and and horrible, you know. Um, but, he took uh, mercy on his yeah, pathetic. She, she took mercy on this pathetic guy. And, um, you know, and it was around this time that I interviewed her and not too long after that Jan would say kind of nasty things about her too. But, um, yeah. You know, I mean, wow. once again, it's like they're all opportunists. They all it's have true. kind of like uh, you know, one of the things that you find out when you interview people, a lot of whom are like in their 70s or whatever, or their 80s, is that you think that things that happened in the 60s, and we've learned this with the Beatles story, you would think that those things would just fade away as like emotional, you know, flashpoints, but they just never do. You know, they, like they they still can grind on a resentment that's from like 1968, you know? Yeah. It's kind of amazing. I'm always surprised by that, that history is always alive for people, that personal history. Can I ask you one other thing? When we were sort of going through the minutiae of like Paul and Yoko's mind games in the 80s, yeah. there's there's an anecdote in your book about when the winners start hanging out with Yoko in the eighties and Yoko mentioned several times to Jan that she thought John was gay or that she used to tell him he was gay. Mm -hmm. And then there's a little part where you said that she also told this to Paul McCartney. Yeah. Can you give like any, Uh, any... I I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at that in, I mentioned that to Paul, though, oh. and uh, we talked about that. Yeah, and um, he hates that. He's like, that's not true. Yeah, here's uh, – okay, so this is what – here's what he said. He says, um, she rang me shortly after John died and said, you know, I think John might have been gay. Oh, wow. I don't think I said anything. I said, oh, no, I don't think so. Certainly not when I knew him. He said, in the 60s, we'd be around with loads and loads of girls, and I bumped into him seeing a lot of girl action. And I'd I'd slept with John very often, but there was never anything, never a touch or a thing, an expression. There was nothing. So I had no reason to believe this at all. But there were rumors, you know. And, you know, the rumors were date back to the Brian Epstein, John Lennon vacation to to Spain story. Um, So... So in that anecdote, he do doesn't, you think so he doesn't yeah, like sorry. that Yoko brings that up? You know, he's yeah, like, right. "What? That's weird." You know, and, and the other thing to know about that, by the way, is that after John died, um, Yoko hooked up with this other guy, Sam, who was gay, and yeah. um, you kind of like, "Huh, that's a little weird." But uh, who knows? I mean, John, I mean, Lennon, yeah. he's yeah, an sure. open person. He's like a he was a you know, probably an omnisexual being. Sure, and, sure. You know, but it, it, but it is like kind of like not uh, a great uh, reaction. After well, I, we're kind of more interested in like, why is she saying that to Paul? So was your impression that she, he said she called, she called him up and told him that? Like, is she, um, is your impression that she was calling up to inform Paul of this or was she trying to get his opinion? I don't know why she would say that, but you know, you asked what it's like to interview Yoko Ono. 
Well, I mean, some of it's just like, oh, that's weird. You yeah. Know, there's sort of some, um, you know, non sequiturs, non sequiturs. Yeah. yeah. And who knows? I don't know the context of that, sure. you know, obviously. Okay. But, um, My other question was Did she, when you were interviewing her, did yeah. she seem to have like animus towards Paul? And like, would hmm. she. Well, like, she, she uh, the only thing that she brought up that I remember was um, when she convinced John to do the nude photo on the cover of the album in the 60s, in the 68 period. Mm. And that, you know, it pissed off the other Beatles and they, they thought it was funny and they were happy to piss off the other Beatles. But Right, I remember reading that. I'd have to go back to the transcript with Yoko and I don't, no, I don't remember making that a highlight yeah. of my um of my interview, but um oh well yeah, she was saying when they did that picture that Paul was very forward. He said, please don't do this. <laughs> um yeah. and because even if we don't do it, people sort of attack us so that we should always show our best foot forward and this isn't it. And John loved it. <laughs> you know? So, you know So she was more she was more focused on on Jan and talking shit about Jan or, or she was talking shit about Jan and, you know, <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, uh, yeah. So I don't, you know, I, when I look through the transcript, I don't see a lot of like, um, we didn't get into a thing with Paul. I regret that now that you're saying it, um, <laughs> but you know, in the moment I was trying to stay focused on a few, she was hard to interview. I will, I, I will say to keep her on, a subject and to try mm. to drill down. She wasn't somebody that would drill down. She'd just say what she thought. That was the end of that conversation, you know? Well, real quick for context, what year was this? That you that were I did the interview? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, Ish. I'm going to say 2015. Okay. Yeah, 14 yeah. or 15. Okay. So, it was, yeah, it was right around in there. She was one of the early interviews. In fact, I interviewed her before Paul's, which may be why I didn't. Mm, have the yeah. ammunition to ask her about it you know sure did you happen to did you ask paul at all about two virgins no okay no i mean you don't really need to no no <laughs> uh but i got you know i know how he felt probably given, <laughs> you know. yeah i mean that was the two virgins is a is a big moment because it's really when john's beginning to establish the his yeah. own path you know away from them so true getting into the mind of yoko ono that's a full-time job yeah and yeah uh, <laughs> we're discovering that <laughs> yeah yeah but you know she's sort of mysterious right yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. and you can't really always get a complete picture of how her mind is working which is part of what made her a great artist too yes and you know makes her an interesting person is like you know Mm -hmm. And then she's like John in that way. John was also unpredictable and in some ways inscrutable. One minute he's, you know, one of the most beautiful saintly um, poets we've ever had. And the other time he's a horrendous human being, right? Yeah. And sure. so there's a, there's some kind of. Um, mystique. He, he's a mystique <laughs> there. And he's sort of like, um, you know, both of them, uh, they would try the patience of any therapist i'm sure <laughs> yeah that's for sure i have one other thing to ask you and this is a sort of um a silly thing sure. but i i would love to hear your take on it um 
in the book in Jan's book he refers to Paul's fairy dust at least twice Uh (laughs) and he also referred to it in an interview um he said to Variety magazine it's hard not to just go fall for the magic fairy dust that's coming all over you every time he opens his mouth yeah uh weird way of putting it but yeah it just very much is yeah so he what he wasn't in the habit of just using these you know magic and dust well, and... well this goes back to what you were saying about did i like uh, um did i fall under the spell of paul when i interviewed him well of yeah. course i did well yeah, sure fuck right i did i mean jesus i mean you're sitting <laughs> yeah. with paul mccartney and he's saying telling you all about beatles history and but did i was i aware that he had a point of view that he was trying to impress me with and get into my sure. book. Yeah, yeah, I did. I yeah, realized yeah. what it was and yeah. I realized that it was good for the book. So like, you know, it was right. not in this, it wasn't well, like yeah. you were doing your job and I, Paul but was doing his the, job. The, the, the fairy dust thing implies like, that, that you don't, a, is that a you don't know. Right. Is that a yawnism? I no, guess is what, no, no he's just, that's just special. For, okay. Well, okay. and he, he may have felt that, you know, well, he knows that people are charmed by him because Paul McCartney is one of those charming people who ever lived, for God's sakes. I mean, he writes these charming yeah. songs. He's a charming guy. And yeah. that charm is a um, has influence and power. Sure. Right? And Jan's aware of the influence and power. And he's, you know, and in, in, in the way that you just contextualized it, um, in the way you quoted it, it seems like he's implying that it has some kind of fraudulent element to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that and also there the the passage about where when I told Yoko, she said, "Oh, you're don't fall for him, don't fall for his magic or whatever." Yeah, you you well, fall, you come under his spell. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. yeah, that's what it was. So yeah, there's yeah. a lot about magic and spells and fairy dust and and what have you. Mm-hmm. That's just I'm, like because Jan um, can't um, analyze it any further. Okay. You know? in my opinion but you know there's some kind of like uh sense skepticism and possibly resentment uh, embedded in that well it's just his passive aggressive way of yeah accusing him of being charming Mm -hmm. or like his way of trying to show that he's jaded underneath it all you know like Mm -hmm. he's skeptical he's like a skeptical journalist (laughs) i don't fall for paul mccartney oh paul can you promote my book I will say that Jan coming out with his own book, it's annoying, you know? It was in reaction to yours. Obviously. Or at least least I inspired him, you know, it inspired him to do it because he, and I know he had lunch with like Tina Brown right after my book came out and he was crying in his beer or whatever. And he was like, why don't you write your own book like I did? Um, And so that's what he set off to do, right? And uh, to kind of like, give some meaning to his post rolling stone uh life life you know and god bless him i'm glad to happen and i'm glad that he made his little book that will make him feel you know <laughs> good or whatever his legacy is set and everything but it doesn't erase my book in any way shape or form and anybody that reads the two which i encourage read them both yeah uh, is going to see you know where the actual content is you know 
in the mm-hmm. context of all of the things that happen because he just doesn't have any context because he doesn't have the power to step outside of himself. Uh, yeah, exactly. He's not really capable yeah. of putting his own life in perspective, any sort of right. Yeah, yeah. it's what's yeah. missing from his book that's in your book. And yeah. uh, honestly, every review that I have read acknowledges that. Like, I, yeah. I'm assuming that Jan thought, you know, his autobiography was going to redeem him somehow, but it has not, judging from the reviews. No, no. Like, it just looks, it looks embarrassing, kind of, you know. Yeah, plus that cover is like just one of the worst. <laughs> Terrible cover. I mean, just what? I, don't, I was really like, I felt bad for him. Um, you know, I say that and I wanted, you know, I, I'm not being flip when I say that, which is that, um, you know, I spent some time with Jan and he is ridiculous. You know, he's a ridiculous, <laughs> his egotism is ridiculous. It's comical. The level of narcissism is like off the map, right? Well, yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, I hate to compare anyone to Trump, but yeah. <laughs> sometimes I have to. Well, I did in the book, and I'll just state for the record that that came from his friends who knew yeah. him. They saw yeah. it. They observed it before I did. And um, But the point is, is that, you know, I want to have affection for Jan, mm. and I sometimes do, because yeah. I know what happened in his life, and I know what his life is about and the arc of it and what it means, you know, and what a kind of, like, rogue he is. You know, yeah, but um, he doesn't make it easy for you. He makes it hard to, you know, <laughs> empathize yeah. with him and at every turn. Um, but uh, to this day, I still have some empathy for him. And uh, it's sort of my job as a biographer to, to maintain mm-hmm. a position that he is a human being. Of course. Yeah. Even though he acts like a total dickhead. In some ways, I should be happy that his book, I'm sure it sold well, actually, you know, but it uh, it's not good. And so whether that matters in the long scheme and things, I don't know. But I think we definitely know that there will be no more books written about Jan Winter. Well, that's for sure. I think Jan wanted a reverential yeah. biography. And there's no reason. Like, this is silly. It's rock and roll, you know? Well, that gets to the heart of the thing, which is that he um, doesn't see journalism and the details that journalism yields as relevant to the vaunted view that he, you know, because he's a mythologizer, right? Yes. And he wants to be a part of the mythology, which yeah. automatically forsakes the role of the journalist or journalism, which mm. he supposedly was the avatar of for the entire generation with Rolling Stone magazine, right? But he yeah. wants nothing to do with journalism, you know? And that's what he rejected about my book is that it was like a giant work of journalism that was about him because he never wanted that thing aimed at him right he wanted to be the mythologizer from a top making it the way he wanted to make it and aiming other journalists at other people right which is what he did his whole life so you know i it, i mean it's not that uh surprising yeah right? that, that he would know that that's not what he wants but he did choose it he did choose right. to have a biography written and yeah. um it sounds like you 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 probably were not surprised by his reaction. Just no, 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 no. Yeah, okay. I knew I knew all along, and I was yeah. walking a tightrope. It was the most stressful time of my life, by the way. Oh, like, really? I mean, just because all along you're meeting with him and you're hearing all this stuff from other people, you know what you're going to do, 
You know, like there's right. no way I was not going to write these things and put everything I knew into it because this is my yeah. book, right? And, uh, you know, the, in the final stretch, I shared with him a lot of stuff that was going to be in the book that was sensitive, whether huh. about sexual escapades or drugs or things that I found in his diaries as a child and all these things. And I had to get him across the finish line and get him to agree to those items because we had had a contractual agreement that I would you know, review certain kinds of things with him, you know, right. and I needed to get them in the book and not have him freak out and say no. Right. So right. I had to like walk him through the threshold there very carefully. you know. And it was a highly stressful thing to try to like, wow, talk him through it so that yeah. he understood that it was meaningful for the book and for the vision of the book. And here's what the book's about and blah, blah, blah. So, um, and I knew on the back end, it could go wrong in any number of ways. And it began to go bad as soon as he found out the title of it. So that was the beginning of the downward slide. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Joe, ha Joe, have you spoken to him at all since? No. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, no. He's spoken about you. Yeah, no, he said he, he, he said plenty of things. Yeah. yeah. Which is fine when he can say what he wants. I mean, that sure. when I, I've responded to them, you know, generally. Well, to, to a degree, he's confirming. By doing that, he's sort of oh, I've been I've said this trip. to a couple of people that his book, the person that you meet in his book is the guy is that the you, person? Yes. you found out about in my book. You know what I mean? Yes. So it's, it's like he walked yeah. out and wrote his own chapter. So, But it's still, <laughs> you could just attach his book to like the end of my book and then it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, that's true it's yeah all, he's the un, he'll be the unreliable narrator chapter totally and yeah. uh, I, mean, I, I got a pro script so he gets one too right um yeah. it's fine you know but it was annoying while it was happening just having to wake up every day the new story with him bullshitting but um uh he can have it let him do it you know it's mm -hmm. sure, it's sure like it's his right and his um, right, yeah. he wants to tell his side he's told it although lots of the things in that book are in my book you know like literally the, even almost similar quotations you know and by the yeah. way he also took some of my independent reporting and used it in his book without citing me which is i'm, I'm not going to complain about it but it, it's true i don't doubt that at all um but that which proved to me when i read these lines that i knew came from interviews i did right i knew that he had been using my book as a you know structural guidepost for his yeah. own book and then i was like really this is how you decide to do it unbelievable anyway so but uh, but he's lazy that way uh, as he would confirm uh he has confirmed in interviews that reason he never wrote it to himself to begin with is because he's lazy back to the beatles all right so yeah. i have two more things i would like to ask you about sure um so the first one is regarding ram well mccartney and ram uh, yeah. i should say there was a bit from a new york times article that i'd just like to read you yeah it says the murder of john lennon a winner favorite is what finishes his 60s idealism and he continues to bathe the beetle in white light here glossing over the harm to their friendship caused by his publishing the acidic interview lennon remembers in book form and the magazine's partisan mistreatment of paul mccartney's brilliant early solo efforts 
Yeah. And in this case, it was John Landau's review of Ram that called it, you know, completely the, the nadir of pop. Yeah. The <laughs> yeah. nadir. Yeah. Which is just. But here's the thing to know the year before, Landau had written this sort of landmark essay uh, that was part of a book he published that basically said rock is dead, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so he would, he'd had it with rock and he shouldn't have been reviewing records like that in the first place. And he was starting to go into being a producer himself of like, you know, Jackson Brown and singer songwriters. And he was writing about film. He wanted to move into film criticism. And, mm -hmm. you know, he, huh. he just basically had become cynical and disinterested in rock and roll mm. at that point and so for his review was probably just him <sighs> hating on you I'm know sitting at the typewriter saying i hate my job and just being a bitch to paul because it was a cool thing to do at rolling stone sure, so sure. um but he was wrong you know obviously dead wrong it's yeah, a great yeah. record it's a record like a lot of the early paul mccartney solo stuff it's fragmentary nature ends up kind of like foreshadowing, you know, mm -hmm. indie rock of later times, yeah. so like guided mm -hmm. by voices and all these other people. And so, I mean, mm -hmm. Ram is very much like a prototype of like a, of an indie rock record of the future. And you know, it sounds homemade, even though it was made in a New York studio. And it has a kind of homespun vibe and, and the vocals of Linda. Yeah. That are unprofessional sounding. Yeah. Do they ground it? You know, yeah. and, it, and they sort of like hedge against his professionalism and his craftsmanship because the guy could write like, the, you know, freaking Brill Building songs. Yeah, for sure, if he wanted to. You know? to. Yeah. But but she sort of brings it down to this really homespun level, and that's the brilliance yep. of it. You know, it's yeah. a brilliant, brilliant record. I love it. You know. Yeah. Well, I do too, and I was, but I was a bit shocked to read that in the New York Times and excited. You know. Yeah. because well i definitely agree with you i think it's brilliant it's interesting to see that as kind of a mainstream idea i know ram has been growing in critical reappraisal for you know the past 20 years but um you know i think your book was probably largely to do with that well i'll tell you a funny story to circle back to something here yeah um my introduction to ram was the guy that plays sitar in the yoga studio yeah, okay, there that, we go. I knew okay. we were going to get back to that studio. Hell yes. Yeah. So, well, he's a friend of mine. He's a really brilliant musician and an artist named Giancarlo Filippa. And uh, he's an um, old friend of my wife's, and he's a friend of mine. And um, we, I was out visiting him. I interviewed Jan. I'd been out in the Hamptons interviewing Jan. And then I went to stay overnight with Giancarlo, who lives nearby. And... Um, he uh, happens to have a quadraphonic stereo system, which means there are four speakers aimed at you from four corners, right? Nice. And uh, he had a reel-to-reel -reel tape machine with a quadraphonic uh, copy of RAM. And he nice. played that for me, and we sat between those four speakers. And this is the first time I'd really listened to RAM closely. And he played that for me, and it was like a mind blower for me. And he knew every note of it and was just really huh. cueing me into how great it was from beginning to end and um so that was my and that happened probably you know early in the production of the winter book so it was relatively recent that i had been introduced to it by this great guy who's a great musical mind and a great guy and then when i interviewed paul i told paul about that that i'd heard it on quadraphonic on a reel to reel 
<laughs> and uh, when I told Paul that, that's what cued him into the fact that I was a total nerd, right? Because <laughs> yeah. he's talking about listening things on a reel-to-reel tape and all this other stuff. He knew I was, <laughs> you know, geeked out on this stuff. Yeah. That's what opened up the door to the studio tour. And the first thing he showed me was the four track that they uh, recorded Sgt. Pepper's on. Ugh. And it was the machine. It was either the machine or a replica of the machine. And he showed, he turned it on. It still worked. He, he was, I have it on a whole video that I took of him showing me how this machine worked. You know, and it was about how you do the drums and the bass, and then you mush them onto one track, and you have three tracks left. And, you know, four tracking music. And um, anyway, so one thing leads to another. That's awesome. So when I saw the um, the endorsement from Paul of Jan's book, yeah, yeah, one of the first things I saw I thought was, oh, I wonder if he's going to address the you know the treatment of his early albums in the book, yeah. which he did not. No. <laughs> and no. then um, he gave Jan gave an interview with Variety, and Variety said, and I'm quoting here, historically there are bands that felt like they didn't get a fair shot from Rolling Stone and had grudges. But then there are those things that changed over time. It sounds like you weren't close to Paul McCartney at all, like you were with John Lennon. And then in later years, you developed more of a friendship. Even as Yoko Ono looked at that a bit askance, they set him up. They gave him a chance to say, you know, like, yeah, we were too harsh on those early albums, right? Yeah. And this is how Yana answers, right? Yeah. Well, it's hard to dislike Paul, and also he's a Beatle, and that's its own category. As I've described it, it's hard not to just go fall for the magic fairy dust that's coming all over you every yeah. time he opens his mouth. But looking back, rightfully, there was some anger at us. Some people got some really unfair bad reviews, like Led Zeppelin, for example. Yeah, yeah, jeez. Hard left, yeah. Yeah. Well, here's the truth. He never read those reviews when they were published the first time, and he probably hasn't read them since. You know, <laughs> he doesn't really give a shit about the record reviews. And, uh, you know, he's really? he never really has. You know, I don't he's always sort of thought of like the re record review people in his own staff as like these kind of like nerds he has to have dragging around, oh, you know. God. Yeah. So like, you know, he he never they always caused him heartburn. That's why he didn't like it, you know, because he couldn't go around in his social circles without learning that what the reviews said from oh, the artist. Oh, yeah. Else, right. Okay. So he's always getting taken to task and like finger in his face at a party or whatever. Right. But he what he doesn't really admit is that it was flowing in some ways flowing from his worldview, you know, right. what people what records were going to get accepted and which weren't. So, mm. I mean, there are instances in which he sends reviews back to be rewritten or in which he writes them, right? To glowingly, glowing review of Mick Jagger, famously, right? Yeah, right. Um, or slow train coming. Let me just tell you my experience of Jan is like that, you know, he doesn't remember half of what was published in the magazine and who can blame him really because it was like decades sure. of issues, you know, and he wasn't even involved with some of those issues, you know, mm -hmm. he, or barely involved, you know, he may have done a pass through on the pages to see what you liked the headlines or not, you know, but like, he wasn't like deeply involved in the magazine, uh, especially those review pages hmm. uh, after 1977, you know, just, he just wasn't. And um, 
his involvement in the magazine waxed and waned from you know period to period but there were like whole long periods where he had nothing to do with the magazine um or he had very little because he was out partying or trying to be in hollywood or whatever else he was doing um so i imagine that when that review came out it's just i don't I mean, Landau was his right hand, so he probably just let him have his head. And so whatever he wants to write, he can write. But I'm sure that he and Landau had similar views on Paul at that time. Well, and it was the Langdon Winter review that he demanded be rewritten. That's right. That's yeah. The, the, yeah, the one. Because he wants Paul's... it to sort of like, um, he wants to bring out the conflict that was he thought was inherently obvious there. And there was conflict there, to be honest. The conflict was Certainly, yeah. that Paul had put out a press release that was like a little mini interview with him. Yeah. You know, that sort of maybe whacked it, John. So, uh, you know, it was all there and he was probably right in that regard. But the point of that anecdote was to show that, you know, Jan was highly aware of this drama and wanted to play it up. Well, and that he very clearly and immediately took sides. If he if he hadn't already yeah. taken sides, oh, I mean, well, there was that, definitely at that time because that's the time he's courting Lenin for the interview. Sure, you know? but I mean, he's if he's a journalist, then <laughs> ostensibly he should present both sides and and take yeah. a even. Yeah, I mean, well, and that's the other thing you have to remember about all of this is that Jan's it's not real journalism. Some no, some of Jan's <laughs> yeah, well. All of these things can be justified by, well, he's a journalist. He betrays all of his friends. Well, he's a journalist, you know, uh, because I, I get that from people sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. But he made, he fuzzed the line between being a friend and being a journalist, right? And yeah. it was in, it was in his uh, benefit to do that, obviously, you know, because uh, in a lot of uh, interviews I did with people over the years were like, them remembering the, the feeling of being betrayed by Jan, who they thought was their friend, right? Because they did some blow at a party or whatever. So it's like, you know, it's like, but all of this, by the way, we're taking it seriously and we're geeking out on it is like mm. the self-seriousness of the boomers, okay? And their yeah. self-mythologizing, that's what my book is about. You know, it's <laughs> about sending that up a little bit because the yeah. truth is, is like by the time I was asked to do this book, I remember thinking, God, I went to the bookstore and I'd go to the music section and I would look at the books that were being published about rock stars and Dylan and the Stones and the Beatles. And, and I was like, man, can the world take one more of these? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was just yes. like, I, I was just like, I cannot write another book that's like these things, you know, that this is sort of like fawning, taking yeah. it with a baked in seriousness that this is like world historical <laughs> yes. stuff. And, you know, and I was just sort of like, I can't do that. I got to do something else. It has to be a cultural critique, you know? Yeah. And, and in, a way, in many ways, Jan was perfect for that because Jan yes. declared that he was the first baby boomer, that he was, you know, the first son of the baby boom because he was born in January 46, which is the beginning of the baby boom. And that his, and his doctor, his pediatrician was Dr. Spock. Okay, the most famous baby boomer doctor, you know, who published yeah, books. That's amazing. You know, so he's in San Francisco when the you know, <laughs> yeah, when the counterculture yeah. started. He's right there. He's like, you know, Forrest Gump from thing to thing. So <laughs> I just thought, well, okay, then if he's going to represent the boomers, let's let him represent the boomers. And in fact, he does represent all the excesses yeah. and the bloated, you know, 
Um, Importance, con- self-importance. Yeah, self-importance, the contradictions, yeah. you know, right, right, right. and uh, just the phases that they all went through. He was at the leading edge of yeah. all those phases and sought to represent them, you know? Yeah. So he did. And so for good or bad, here it is. Here's the story. There's a line in my book that I think encapsulates it best. It's near the end where I say, well, it's a story that began with John Lennon and ends with Donald Trump. That's mm-hmm. the story of the boomers. So like you do the math about what they're about, you know, and what their true kind of legacy is. Was he able to appreciate once you, I assume, once you explained it to him, um, the, the fact that you were imitating sort of the new journalism style in your, in your prose mm. of the book? Did no. he? No, he doesn't, he doesn't care about appreciate that. No, he doesn't, <laughs> no. Care. he doesn't care about journalism. I mean... That's he so li- sad. No, I mean he likes he likes journalism, but he doesn't care about that because it was about him. He couldn't see past it, you know. Okay. It's so personal to him that, you know, if it was like Leo Tolstoy had written it, he would have been pissed at Leo Tolstoy. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Well, I yeah, do, I, too. I appreciate you saying very, that because it was very enjoyable. If you're writing about Tom Wolfe and Hunter Thompson and, you know, Robin Green, all these people that were there who wrote these legendary pieces. And as a part of my research, I'm reading them. Mm-hmm. You know, it got into me. I was already fans of that stuff, but I was sort of like, you know, I feel like the best thing I could do is sort yes. of cha- channel this kind of golden era Rolling Stone to write about him. Yeah. You know? yeah. And yeah. I also thought, you know, I didn't think, t- you know, in my feeling about Hunter Thompson after I finished writing this book was that I didn't like him and mm. that he was an asshole. But, um, and, you know, he had a period where he was brilliant and then he had a long, yeah. long, long period where he was not. And he was sort of a grotesque parody of himself. And Jan wanted to dine out on his legend as much as Hunter wanted to dine out on his own legend. But, <laughs> um, but it was like, uh, when I thought about what, hunter thompson would think of jan you know now i mean imagine his critique you know it would be savage right i was just eviscerated yeah yeah and he did eviscerate him even back in the when he was a bloated yuppie in the 80s and everything so like when jan was uh so you know on some level i was only using their judgment on themselves from the point of view of their most glorious journalistic period you know that was sort of the intent of it you know in your opinion joe do you think if just going back to like the beatles breakup and the split between lennon and mccartney into sort of teams or whatever team lennon team Mm. mccartney yeah um if at that time paul had been the one playing the pr game and john had been the one hiding out in his farm you know i'm talking to anybody if paul was playing ball with jan wenner and cozying up to him do you think jan would have gone with paul or did he was was he genuinely smitten with john i think that jan is genuinely smitten with anybody who's famous who will talk to him you know and in that instance Yes, he liked John. There's no getting around. He liked John and he thought yeah. he liked his wit. You know what I mean? And he seemed yeah. at the time to be the leader of the group. So he wanted to be mm-hmm. friends with the leader of the group, you know? 
I think afterwards he tried to get an interview with Paul, but Paul, after he interviewed John for the famous interview, yeah, he tried to get an interview with Paul. Paul wouldn't talk to him, and Paul went to Life Magazine and did a Life Magazine interview. But I don't, I just don't see a world in which those two are simpatico. You know, mm. I, I don't think Paul would have been interested in Jan. You know, but I don't know. I don't. It's you know. That's fan fiction. I can't really, uh, I can't yeah. comment on that. Yeah. yeah, sure. I could see, I could see John Lennon being more capable of handling a Jan winner. Well, he was more intimidating and controlling than Paul. You know, well, John. Well, that, that's kind of what I mean. Like, it, like yeah. John could sort of be like, "Oh, okay, you see me a certain way, I can play into that very easily." Like, you want me yeah. to intimidate you and to right. be mean to you, I can do that. Yeah, I think that what he liked about John was that John and Yoko were obsessed with the media, and they liked, <laughs> they loved manipulating the media, and they love. And he, Jan, was like, "I will be your handmaiden then." Um, because, you know, if you see, uh, did you guys see the Imagine movie about the making of that record? So it's a documentary that was out. It's on Netflix or one of the places. But anyway, it's, you, you should. They're, you know, they're out in this remote farm where John and Yoko are living in England. And they have all these cool people coming in to play on the record, famous people. And um, there's just cameras all over the place following them around everywhere they go. There was not a moment that they're not on a camera. Right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, at first you're just looking at them and thinking, you know, this is a beautiful thing. This is, I'm so glad I'm getting insight <laughs> into this great world. But then you realize, oh, they're just, everywhere they go, there's a camera guy. Yeah. They're making a yeah. TV show, you know? Yeah. So like that level yeah. of self-awareness, you know, I mean. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I always saw, you know, Paul and, and Linda, also had their own kind of image making that they did sure uh and she was a photographer so that was a natural for them you know but they were more uh circumspect about it you know i think that they were a little more private about it and yeah. you would you know there's uh but there's actually a book of um photographs that linda took and all the sheet music to ram that, she, that they published as a book uh, which I would recommend finding on eBay and getting a copy. This is super beautiful. But um, but when you look through it, it's like, you know, this is the, an image of them as living on a farm with the horses and the sheep, you know, that whole period. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, they made this record in a New York studio, right? Sure. So they're, there's a, they're, they're doing manipulation too. But I just think that uh, they were not as uh, self-righteous as John and Yoko about going out and presenting themselves as like avatars for the revolution. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <right. laughs> I mean, cause pa Paul and Linda were sort of folksy, you know what I mean? They were or presenting yeah. themselves as that, you know, and uh, as sort of like, you know, that first record sort of establishes that the Paul McCartney one, which is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a world of small songs that aren't trying to do anything other than kind of uh, be honest. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Home, family, love. Yeah. Yeah. Which I love all that stuff. Um, I'm a huge fan of that. I'm, I love all the early wings and the early Paul McCartney. So, I'm, you know, yeah, same. How strong of a feeling or an opinion or a love for the music did Jan 
actually have do you do you know do you have any insight into that like does does he legitimately like like music well i do i do think he likes music but um not as much as us (laughs) he's not a he's not a um he's not academic about it in any way Hmm. you know he just likes he likes the big primary colored you know yeah rockers he loves springsteen he loves you too right yeah he loves kind of basic he's a basic he yeah what do they say the kids say now he's a basic bitch so like you know he he he's not complicated oh people are always saying this to me when i was writing his biographies just like he just likes the old he likes the california rock he likes the eagles you know that's like that's who he is he's just very basic he never really got out beyond that you know he was yeah that's obvious really. yeah yeah so that's why he had all these like record reviewers around to do all that stuff but he wasn't interested in them you know and wasn't interested in what they said about these records because he didn't care about the records you know and yeah. when the mtv people came along he wasn't interested in any of that in fact he was against mtv right so um you know he's it's funny uh, i'll tell you one of the things that towards the end of the book i uh i was having a lot of conversations with his lawyer who feel like they were having a falling out at the time because he was his mm-hmm. lawyer and his business manager who had been with them since the 70s and just knew everything you know and for whatever reason he was telling me it all and i was very happy about that as a journalist but one thing he always said to me was like he's like you know let me tell you something jan winter is a publisher if it wasn't rock and roll it would have been something else he's like he's mm-hmm. a publisher you know what I mean? And I was like, yeah. that really, I think you nailed it. You know yeah. what I mean? That's what he is. I mean, he, yeah, he loves rock and roll, but he loves it because that's his business, you know? And he loved and he it. he the image aesthetic. Yeah, he Shay. loved it. He liked it and he liked, there was a kind of like um, a little bit of like the queer eye for the straight guy thing going on with him in the late 60s mm-hmm. where he's like, oh, the boys can look like girls now and I'm digging this. You know, yeah. which he yeah. says in the book, you know, in my book. Um, so, you know, it was a combination of things, but he always wanted to be a publisher, right? He always wanted to be, you know, the head of a, a thing because he admired like, <laughs> yeah. Book Magazine and, you know, these mid 60s magazines. He was sort of infatuated with the style of them and the taste of them, right? So he wanted to be a publisher and a tastemaker. Mm. Um, and he was successful. Well, last thing I wanted to ask about is George Harrison. Yeah. Um, because uh, I don't really remember much about him in Sticky Fingers. Yeah, he's not a prominent uh, yeah. character in it. But um, yeah, I don't have a lot about him in the book. And I don't have a lot of personal strong opinions about him. So here's one of the, one of the things that I have noticed is that... Um, some of John's nastier comments about George Harrison in Lennon remembers, okay, yeah. no longer seem to exist in print. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have an original copy of the book, you know, the 70s book, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure I could find one for 
a great deal of money on eBay, maybe. But the online version that Rolling Stone still publishes of Lennon Remembers, like those are omitted. Um, But I do have audio of it, of John saying George's music means nothing to him and he considers George less talented than him. And, you know, George's ego is on the way to becoming as as big as John and Paul's and whatever. Um, And interestingly, like when he talks about George, John, despite having just said a bunch of shitty things about Paul, is still Team Lennon McCartney. You know, when George is brought up, which is sort of a fascinating detail, especially if you're looking at, you know, for Beatle people who want to look at why was George Harrison so resentful. That's kind of a interesting detail. You, you know, sort yeah. of adds something. But like the selective editing has just taken it out. Well, that's interesting. That doesn't surprise me. But um, I wonder when that happened. Me too. You know, because Jan hasn't been in the picture there for a while, but it must have happened while he was in power. Well, Um, he has become, you know, George Harrison has become much more beloved since his death and more popular in in later years. mm -hmm. And, you know, as far as I can tell, based on everything I've, I've read and researched, George Harrison and Yoko never had a good relationship. Like, re- mm. like she really dislikes him and vice versa. Um, but that isn't something that you see or hear about nowadays at all. In fact, the, you know, judging from, you know, whenever they release a box set or a Twitter party or whatever, they're always, you know, posting and reposting George Harrison playing on How Do You Sleep and making it into like a George and John feud against Paul like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, Yoko came out at, at some point and explicitly said John always championed George's songs, unlike Paul. Which is bullshit. Which is not true. But... Which is just false. This is just not true. Yeah. But um, I but it's kind of obvious why Yoko would play into it, right? Because George is popular now. He's like sometimes he's the most popular beetle for me his uh solo musical legacy is the least known to me in some ways and there's more to be revisit you know i mean the new revolver is out i mean i don't i love it you know yeah but i know that from forwards and backwards but if you put out a um a all things must pass remake like the sun is doing uh that's been remastered without any of the Phil Spector stuff in it. Well, that's interesting to me because I'm going to listen to that record. I'm less familiar with it. Yeah. And I'll I'll spend more time. I'll focus on it because I'll be like, Oh, I'm going to give this a chance now. And I actually like it better without the, with the Phil Spector stripped out because I never liked the Phil Spector production on that record. I always found Mm -hmm. it flat. I found it flat and kind of um, not compelling. It didn't seem very, it wasn't dynamic. And so I'm hoping that, and I haven't heard it all yet, but the redone version. But um, but what I did hear of it, I liked. And of course, there's some great songs on that record. I love some some of the songs on that record. I really love. But yeah, me too. So, winner to the best of you don't have any insight about like winner's feelings about George Harrison or if he had any, <laughs> if he even Not had really. any. My guess is he didn't have any real big, um, strong feelings about. Harrison, but I we never talked about it. Yeah. So the fact that it didn't come up, you know, probably means he's not thinking about it too much. 
he would have known all the gossip about it though you know jan had like a lot of god if you had asked him about george Harrison, he would probably have like tidbits for you you know yeah sounds like he had he had you, you should get on him everybody. on the show yeah. <laughs> he'd love to come on i'm sure mm-hmm. i'll give you his number he can call him he'll pick up you know the beatles story is going to keep going on and i'm sure that i'll keep you know uh helping underwrite paul mccartney's landscaping uh on his <laughs> mansion by uh, throw, <laughs> throwing in a few bucks for the next thing they know that they have us yeah they never give us their money oh, <laughs> oh. we give them one. our money yes we do, we do. Uh, <laughs> that's how this relationship works it's yeah. one-sided in that way yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, well it was fantastic speaking with you joe yeah that was yes fun. thank you so much sure yeah. thing you know now i have to go uh take a nap or something that was a lot it was a lot it was yeah. a lot thanks for having me keep up the good work thank you very thank much you. same to you thank you for listening to our second installment of strange bedfellows if you haven't listened to episode one of this series you can go back and do so now and if you are all caught up Stay tuned, because our third episode is on its way. That's right, Phoebe. We continue our investigation into the 1990s, a new decade. My favorite decade. Is it? (laughs) Indeed, yeah. (laughs) We've done two episodes, over two hours each, and we've gotten through one decade. (laughs) Every four-part series we've ever done has turned into a five-part series, so... That is correct. (laughs) <laughs> so we just won't tell people how long they're going to be. It will be a mystery. No, for everyone. Yeah. I gotta say, every chapter of this crazy story gets even more interesting, doesn't it? Yeah. It's shocking how the drama manages to, to escalate. <laughs> yes. Yes. You would think it would it would die down. But oh no. I feel like Paul and Yoko look at each other half the time like that meme of the kid with the scrunched up face saying mm, can't relate and the other half of the time they're like i'm in this picture and i don't like it they have big differences but also big similarities mm. those are tend to be the people who drive you crazy it's right? very true yes yeah. they're the immovable object and the unstoppable force joe hagan's book sticky fingers the life and times of yon winter and rolling stone is available now through knopf publishing yon winter's book like a Rolling Stone, is available through Little Brown and Company. Buy them both. Give them a read. And if you enjoyed this episode of Another Kind of Mind, please like, share, subscribe, and recommend us to friends. And to enemies. We are a blessing and a curse. <laughs>